Hear now the very word of God as it is given to us in the Gospel of Luke, reading from the second chapter, verses 8 through 12. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And may the Lord bless this reading of a very familiar passage to us this morning. May he illuminate our hearts and our minds. Let's ask him for that. Heavenly Father, you know we run a risk every time we turn to one of these oh, so often read passages that we're just going to breeze through it. Well, we know it. We've heard it a thousand times. And yet there's such glory here. There is such richness Such spiritual wealth to be found. I pray that we'll all slow down and dive into the text and let your spirit speak to us and illuminate our hearts and help us to understand what it means when the angel says, fear not, I'll give you the glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen. I'm going to start out, as I often do, with a very personal question for you this morning. This is one that's directed at each and every one of you. And that is simply this. What is it that you fear? What makes you tremble? What is it that you absolutely are terrified of? Well, I can tell you what I fear. It may not be exactly what the rest of you fear, I mean, sometimes people fear poverty, they fear illness, they fear loneliness, they fear insignificance, they fear terrorism, they fear bodily harm, they they fear death. I fear now, and I have always feared God, because God is to be feared. No, I fear Him now in a different way, a completely different way than I used to before I was a Christian. But before I was a Christian, I was terrified of the thought of God. I was raised in a Southern Baptist home, and I heard my share of hellfire and damnation sermons. I knew the score. Of course, I rejected that when I was in college and adopted man-made philosophies. But, you know, there's something funny about when the Word of God goes in, it kind of sticks and it's hard to get it out of you, you know. And, And so at times of lucidity or thoughtfulness or times when I began to think of my own mortality, the thought of God would flood me and I would be filled with this overwhelming panic. And I had to drive it out of my mind some way or anesthetize it in some way because I couldn't go to a place where I was standing before a holy God because I knew what the Bible said about what happens to those who don't know him or reject him or turn away from him. Now, this morning we're going to see a story of some shepherds representing the bottom of the social strata. We'll talk about that. But we're going to see them have a close encounter with God, with the Shekinah glory of God, and they're going to be terrified because they are face to face with that God. And then an angel is going to tell them to do something that is absolutely impossible. The angel is going to say, fear not. And then he's going to explain to us how it is possible to not fear the holy in the way that you do when you don't know him. Or when you're running from him. And I hope that it will be something of great edification. Not only for those of you who know him. But uh, those who don't. That you might understand that it is wise to fear God. 
Well, we're in the middle of a, a masterful um, uh, um, handling of the nativity in Luke. And I've been kind of preparing you for this, that, that Luke has prepared this sort of um, bookends to the way that he presents his nativity. At the end of chapter 1, through the Benedictus, that song that Zechariah sang, he talked about the culmination of all redemptive history. He talked about the light period piercing the darkness and the day spring or the sunrise from on high and how God was going to bring all his covenants and all of his promises and all of redemptive history together in the birth of his son. Now, at that time, it was just a, 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 a fetus in Mary's womb. But now that child has been born. Now, next week, we're going to see the other side of that book in as heaven opens up and literally the celebration spills over into our dimension as the heavenly host appears in the heavens. And in between, we looked at it last week, in between we had the most extraordinary description of the birth of that child. Completely different from what these two bookends are. We talked about a humble, a, a child born to the most simple kinds of situations, wrapped in swaddling cloths and put in a trough made for the feeding of cattle and horses. And when we made a comparison, because Luke does, oh, oh, there in Rome, you've got Caesar Augustus, one of the greatest leaders that the earth has ever produced, and absolute power and sway, total wealth, complete influence, and yet, that babe in a manger is the one who's truly powerful, who truly has influence. He's the one with dominion, and Caesar is just a vapor in the wind. And now, right as we start to move into the glory part, we're going to have a discussion about who that humble Savior came to save as we see the announcement of the birth to a bunch of shepherds out in the field. So let's jump into the text because we have quite a bit of it this morning. Starting the 8th verse, and in the same region there were shepherds out in the field. Now the same region obviously is the region surrounding Bethlehem. It's a perfect for fields, it's, got, it's very fertile, but also really great pasture land, good place for sheep to be. You know, there's something interesting though about this area. Somewhere, and I don't know where it is, but it was in the rabbinic writings of the time, somewhere there was a marker, there's sort of a, of, of a line that was, and if a sheep was inside that line in between Bethlehem and Jerusalem, it was assumed that it was there for a sacrifice. That's where all the animals that would be sacrificed in the temple were kept. And so you didn't want to stray across that line unless you wanted your sheep to be taken as a sacrifice. But wouldn't that be ironic? Wouldn't that be something? If the sheep that all of these shepherds that are going to get this announcement were actually overseeing sheep that would be used as sacrifices in the temple as that sacrifice of all sacrifices is announced in, in Jesus Christ. Well, anyway, let's talk about those shepherds because they're, they're very important to this story. There are shepherds that are out in the fields by night. Now, most of you know that, that the Jews of this time had a very well-established and ordered pecking order in society. There were those who were at the top of that order and those who were at the bottom. And, and quite often, people could be at the bottom for a physical ailment, like a leper or someone who is insane. Sometimes they were at the bottom of that strata because of their moral uh, behavior, a prostitute or a tax gatherer. But then sometimes there were people that were at the bottom of that strata just because of who they were, because of the class that they belonged to. And such was the case with shepherds. Shepherds were shunned. They were despised. They were at the very bottom of the social strata. Now, even though some of the most famous people in redemptive history, like Moses and David, were shepherds still, in this society, to be a shepherd was to be, to, to be considered to be despicable. In fact, you know how important witnessing was to them? That's how they got, had their forensic evidence. Well, a shepherd couldn't bear testimony in court. Because they were considered to be untrustworthy. 
Well, this is for a couple of reasons. One is because at, because of the nature of their work. You know, they're out in the fields. They have to keep constant vigilance over their sheep. They have to watch over them. So they couldn't go into Jerusalem. They couldn't go to the temple. They couldn't observe the feast days. And they couldn't do all of the myriad laws that the scribes and Pharisees had put in place. So therefore, all of the religious elite looked at them and said, well, they're on the, almost on the outside of the covenant. They're, they're religious uh, apostates. But there was another reason that they found themselves to be at the bottom of that ladder. (laughs) That was because, I like the way Leon Morris puts it, he's a scholar, um, who says, they had difficulty distinguishing between what was thine and what was mine. In other words, they had sticky fingers. They were petty thieves. And when people saw shepherds coming, they would watch over their belongings. You know, very similar, I think, to the, the gypsies in southern Europe during the, the Middle Ages and later. You know, when the gypsies came to town, you'd lock all your belongings away, including your children. Because they were known to be just scallywags and, and looking for trouble, looking for thievery or something like that. Well, that's the way that shepherds were considered to be. Now, this is what's important, what's significant about this, is that these are the ones that are going to get this announcement. These are the ones that are sitting out in that that, um, field on that night that the angel and the glory of God, these are the ones that are going to be, um, uh, uh, are going to hear that great, incredible announcement. Now, um, in a symbolic sense, this is huge because, again, they represent those who are lost in sin, those who are in the darkness, those who are, are not religious people at all. In, in fact, they, these are exactly what Zechariah talked about at the end of his Benedictus when he said to give light to those who sit in the darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. This is exactly what they represented to the people of first century Palestine. Isaiah put it a different way. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. So in other words, these shepherds represent... I mean, remember, we've got Jesus in the feeding trough in Bethlehem. These shepherds represent the ones he came to save. Because Jesus himself will say later on, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick... I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I came for sinners. And so therefore, these shepherds represent that class, that group of people of which you and I are a part. These are the ones that he came to save, not the righteous. You see... Here's an important point about this entire morning. And that is that the righteous, the self-righteous, don't need a Savior. They don't understand the need for a Savior. Remember the parable that Jesus will tell later on in the book of Luke where two men went up to the temple, a Pharisee and a tax gatherer, the bottom of the barrel too? Well, the Pharisee said, oh, thank you, Lord, that I am so self-righteous. And the tax gatherer is pounding his chest and saying, God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Well, that's the one that Jesus came to save. The one who knows that he's a sinner. The one that he understands that God is to be feared. Because there is condemnation for those who turn their eyes and their hearts against God. Well, anyway, that is why we have such a hugely significant um, uh, event here. Now, I want to make a point. And I'll make this point several times this morning. But... First of all, I might be being unfair to this particular group of shepherds, so let me just go ahead and state that. They may be actually really good shepherds. They, they may be holding, you know, I mean, vigils and praying to God in, in their time in isolation, and that is one of the reasons that the angel came. But that's not what they represent. But what is so extraordinary about this is we're only about six or seven miles from Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem are all of the priests and the chief priests and the high priests and the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the workers of the law and everyone who's supposed to be amongst the religious elite. God did not come to them to announce that his son was here. He went to sinners. He went to those who desperately needed a savior and were aware of it. 
That is something, brothers and sisters, that we really need to understand. That it was not the elite, but those who needed a Savior. Well, anyway, we, we, the, the shepherds are out in the field and they're keeping watch over their flock by night because they're not the only scallywags in the world. There were other, other people who would steal their sheep, including animals as well. So they were vigilant as they watched their sheep. And then verse 9 is an incredible verse. And then an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, an angel of the Lord. Angel just means messenger. Okay, I told you I was going to say this several times. A messenger of God is sent by God with a particular task or a particular message. That's what angels did. God sent them to do his work. Which means that this angel has been sent specifically by God. To these people. This isn't a random effect. I mean, he wasn't trying to hit, you know, Bethlehem and missed. And it just so happened that these angels were the only, I mean, these shepherds were the only ones there. God sent this messenger with this message directly to these people, not to Caesar Augustus in Rome, the wealthy, the powerful, the influential, and not to the self righteous religious leaders in Jerusalem, but to the sinners out in the field. And so God sent his messenger, the angel, and um, he appeared to them. Now, that word appear is something that we kind of want to make sure that we see. Uh, it's, it's, we get the idea, and unfortunately, all the pictures that you've seen and all the movies that you've seen of this, they, they kind of affect the way that you see this. We always kind of see the angel up there, don't we? Sort of hovering over the shepherds, and the shepherds are down here, and the angel is kind of exuding a light of his own, you know? Funny, you never see him flapping his wings, do you? He's just kind of hovering there like he's defying gravity. Well, that's not exactly the way the text is. The text, the New American Standard, gets it closer to the text, and he stood before them. So, so in other words, he's there. He, he's like on the ground. He is in front of these shepherds. And, and this is when we are going to see this, this amazing um, uh, scene take place. Now, the danger that we have of seeing, and, and I can't tell you how many times I've seen this. You, you see the angel, and you see the angel just kind of shining, Right? And there's this light that's there, but it's all emanating from the angel. Brothers and sisters, that's not what the text says. Don't, don't, don't read this by looking at what your culture has said about it. Notice what the text says. And the glory of the Lord shone around them. The Shekinah, the glory of God. Brothers and sisters, this is a theophany. This is a theophany, and that is a visible manifestation of the invisible God. It is just like the way God appeared to Moses in the burning bush, or in the clouds when the manna from heaven was coming, or in the pillar of fire by night and cloud by day, or on Mount Sinai, or when the cloud that was dazzling appeared and settled upon those three disciples on top of the Mount of Transfiguration. This is a theophany, a manifestation of God himself. God has come. I mean, the angel is completely secondary here, the way I see it. You're not going to see any light coming off of the angel because the light you're going to see is the glory of God shining all around. The Shekinah of God has come to shine all around them. Now, here's what I want you to ask yourself. You see, this is the kind of stuff you're supposed to ask yourself as you read Scripture. Don't, don't, don't just whip through it. When was the last time that the Shekinah shone upon Israel. When was the last time that the glory of God came to Israel? Now, if you remember in the first chapter, when Zechariah was in the temple and Gabriel appeared to him, that was the first time in 400 years that God had revealed his plan or in any way communicated with his people. That was the first time that any kind of prophetic or appearance at all from God. 400 years. When was the last time that the glory of God filled something in Israel? Last time I can remember is at the dedication of Solomon's temple a millennia earlier. This is what we read in the book of Kings. 
And when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Now, we talk about the glory of the Lord. I mean, there's a lot of discussion about that, but we don't have, at least as far as I can see, an actual appearance of the Shekinah coming down and shining on something. Isaiah saw it in his sixth chapter, but Isaiah is seeing a vision. When he says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple, and the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. I mean, he's seeing the manifestation of the glory of God, but he's seeing it in a vision. Actually, it was Ezekiel, probably somewhere around 600 years before Christ was born. Who said several times, the glory of the Lord has left this place. The glory of the Lord left Jerusalem. He says that in his 11th chapter, the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city. He talks about it coming back in Jesus, which is exactly what we are seeing happening right here. In fact, brothers and sisters, what we are witnessing is exactly what Zechariah said would happen Just at the end of the first chapter, Zechariah put it this way, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadows of death to give God to guide our feet into the way of peace. Well, that is exactly what we are just seeing. We are seeing the light of God, the Shekinah and the glory of God pierce the darkness and once again for the first time in a thousand years to shine upon the land. And he is doing it, why? Because his son has come in the culmination of all of redemptive history. But who's he doing it to? (laughs) Have I made my point yet? Who's he shining his glory upon? A bunch of shepherds out in the field. Not Caesar Augustus. Not even Zechariah and Elizabeth. Or or Anna and and Simeon. Not even the the Messianic community, but these shepherds. And I think there's a powerful message there. Because that's who he's come to save, folks. People who need a savior. Not the self-righteous. Not the ones who don't need a savior. Well, anyway... The angel goes on and tells us that as the glory of the Lord shone around them, they were filled with fear. Now we're going to start getting to the core of it this morning. Now granted, this is a natural reaction when a human being sees a heavenly being like an angel. Uh, There's fear. In fact, if you go back to the first chapter when Zechariah was confronted by Gabriel in the temple, he had fear. He was filled with fear and, and he was troubled. When Mary, Gabriel visited her and told her she was going to have a son, she was greatly troubled. Later on, when the women visit the tomb and there's a couple of angels, Angels there, we're going to tell, we're going to find that they were full of fear and bowed their heads. So, this is a very normal reaction to seeing an angel. And if the angel was the only one there, I would say, yes, that's what's going on. They're fearful because they've seen an angel stand in their midst. But the angel is completely overshadowed by the Shekinah and the glory of God. So, they're not, they're not afraid of the angel, just. They're afraid of God. Because there's something that happens, brothers and sisters, when that which is profane, that which is defiled, that which is a sinner, comes into the presence of the perfect, holy, righteous God. They are overwhelmed with their own sinfulness. Overwhelmed. And in fact, it's almost like they have to find a rock to crawl under because their sinfulness is so obvious to them. What Isaiah said in his, once again, going back to his sixth chapter, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Remember what Peter did when, we'll see it in Luke 5, when he saw Jesus work a miracle that only God could work. He came running and fell down on the knees of Jesus and said, Depart from me, O Lord, for I am a sinful man. I cannot stand in your presence because of your 
holiness. When the cloud descended upon the three disciples, Peter was there too on the Mount of Transfiguration. Mark tells us that they were terrified. So I see this as a holy fear, brothers and sisters. I see it as a natural fear, but a holy fear that comes from the conviction of their own sins when they're in the presence of the holy. And in fact, I think the language supports that. The, actually, it's not just a word. There are words that Luke uses to talk about the fear of the, the, the shepherds. It's not a normal fear. It's not, and they were afraid. I like the way the old King James says it. And they were sore afraid. They were terrified. The, um, if I was to translate it literally, it would be something along the lines of, and they feared with a great fear. To put in colloquial language, they were terrified out of their wits. They were so afraid because they were in the presence of God Almighty. And when you're in the presence of God Almighty, you recognize that it is a deeper and a eternal fear. So this is the situation that exists at the end of verse 9. This is where we are. The Shekinah of God is shining around. You have a bunch of sinners out there in the middle of the field. They recognize they're in the presence of God, and they're absolutely, positively terrified. And then look what the angel says next. Fear not. <laughs> you can only imagine the shepherds saying, what do you mean fear not? I'm going to hell, and I'm in the, conf- I'm in the face of God, and you're telling me not to be afraid? There's no way I cannot be afraid when I am in the presence of a holy God. Let let me take just a wee bit of an excursus here, a little rabbit trail for just a moment. Proverbs tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I like the way it's put in Proverbs 9. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. And what that is saying is that it is wise to fear God. The more you know him, the more you fear him. You will know him and fear him in a different way once you're a Christian, once you know Jesus, once you know that you have been redeemed. It becomes a holy fear, a reverent fear, a loving fear. But it's a fear no less. You respect and honor and revere God in his holiness, his transcendence. But For those who don't know him, those who are outside of any salvation, it is wise. The wise person is going to fear God. And and the wise person is also going to see themselves for who they are. It is the unwise, it is the imprudent person that waters God down to make him somebody he can accept or he can control or someone who doesn't scare him. It's, it's the unwise person who elevates themselves to a point where they are so exalted that their own good deeds and righteousness is enough to placate a perfectly holy and righteous God who is wrathful at sin. It is wise to see God for who he is. And it is wise to see us for who we are. And it is wise to recognize that that's a hopeless dilemma, an entirely unsolvable situation. There is no way that a sinful human being can ever have relationship with a holy God. None whatsoever. We are absolutely hopeless. We are in the darkness and we are standing at the very gates of hell. You say, boy, that hellfire and damnation kind of rubbed off on you, didn't it? Now, I'm talking about the bad news, okay? Because, you see, we've got to finish with what the angel is saying. Because, and, and one of the great tragedies of modern evangelicalism is that we've watered God down so far, and we've elevated ourselves so far that the good news isn't good anymore. The good news is only good if you are desperate and hopeless and you desperately need a Savior. That's when the good news is so good. The, the greater you understand the bad news, the better you'll understand the good news. And the good news becomes so good. And that's what the angel says next. He says, fear not. I am going to give you a formula so that you Do not have to fear the holy in the way that you're feeling him now. Fear not, he says in verse 
10, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. I bring you good news. I love that. That's one of my favorite, my, my favorite phrases in this whole passage because underneath that is indeed the same word that we use for gospel, euangelitsa in, in the Greek. It is the gospel. An angel has been sent from God in heaven to come to earth to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with these shepherds. Is, is scripture great or what? <laughs> well, that's exactly what he's done. He's come to say, this is the good news. This is the good news of great joy. See, here's another reason, and I hate to harp on this, but it's so prevalent around us. If, if you don't have any fear of God, and, and, and you don't recognize your own sinfulness, uh, modern evangelicalism doesn't want to talk about that. It just wants to talk about the good and it, it's wonderful and God has forgiven you of all your sins. And, and, and you know something? You're going to find meaning and significance in the church and we're a great bunch of people and you're going to go to heaven. And all of that is so wonderful and all it actually happens to be true. But unless you understand that you are a condemned sinner at the gates of hell, as Zechariah says, it's only going to take a push and you're there for an eternity. And God has reached down into that darkness and snatched you up and pulled you from the very gates of hell and redeemed you and set you on high and exalted you through His Son, Jesus Christ. If you understand that, brothers and sisters, you're going to have joy. Real joy. That's what the angel is saying. I bring you good news of a great joy. That is for all people. Now when he says that, this is also an important little point. I don't know what you miss. When he says that, that just the phraseology, he's talking about God's people. So he's talking about the Jews in this particular instance. And the way that relates is important because he's saying to these lowly shepherds, the, the, these sinful sinners, these guys out there, the bottom of the barrel as far as society, he's saying that this good news and this great joy is for all people, even the likes of you, even those at the bottom of the barrel, the bottom of the social ladder, those who are so overwhelmed by the sinfulness of their past lives, they don't think they can ever be saved, even the likes of you. Of course, we know that later on, even in Jesus' ministry, you know, remember he first came and he said, you know, salvation is of the Jews. He says to the lady in Samaria, and he says to his disciples, go nowhere among the, the houses of, of the Gentiles because I came for the lost sheep of Israel. But even in his own ministry, he reached out to that Syrophoenician woman and healed her, her daughter. He reached out to the centurion. He reached out to the lady of Samaria. So even Jesus began a ministry that was expanding the definition of what it meant to be the people of God. And then in Acts, we see it spread across the known world. And then John tells us in Revelation, By your blood you ransom people from God from every tribe and language and people and nation. That means us, brothers and sisters, but don't forget what the angel told the shepherds. Even you. Even a horrible fallen, totally depraved person like yourself with sins that you don't think God could ever forgive. God sent his son to you so that you could have the joy of the good news of Jesus Christ. Well, so far the angel has told us that there's going to be joy He's told us that there is going to be no fear now, or at least not the kind of fear that you experienced before, but he hadn't told us how. And he does that in the 11th verse. Look what he says. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. He explains everything in one sentence. For... Unto you is born this day 
Now, we know that Luke is an historian, and we know that he is placing this in history. In those days, we know he started this chapter out. In the days of Herod, he started the, the first chapter out. But he hasn't told us the specific day, because what is truly significant is that it is this day in God's plan of redemption that his son has come to save his people. That is what is so significant. This is, as Paul said, the fullness of time in Galatians when he said, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. The time of God's plan of our salvation is upon us, as Zechariah said. But don't miss that, what he says. For unto you is born. This day. He's talking to a bunch of shepherds when he says that. Unto you. For your benefit. Who are the beneficiaries of this? You are. Unto you is born this day. It is intensely personal. It it, it is something that is so personal that even though millions if not billions of people have heard that. And have accepted Christ as their savior in the two millennia that have followed. That it is personal to each and every one of us. If you were the only person on earth it would still be unto you is born this day. Unto you is salvation. Unto you is atonement. Unto you is forgiveness. Unto you is righteousness. Unto you is resurrection. Unto you is an eternity in heaven. Unto you he has been born. It is personal. And that's the kind of relationship that Jesus wants with you. It's a personal relationship. That's why this is not a worldview. This is not a philosophy. This is not something you join This is a personal relationship between you and the babe lying in a manger. For unto you is born this day in the city of David. And that just draws a line from 2 Samuel 7 right where we are. Because that's where God promised David that there was always going to be one of his descendants on the throne. Well, that descendant is Jesus. That descendant has come. And he's a king of a different kind of kingdom because it's the kingdom of heaven. But nonetheless, he draws directly to what he states. And then he gives us three extraordinary words, three descriptors. Now, I want you to remember before we look at these three words that he's describing A baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, he's going to remind them, lying in a food trough made for animals, born to artisan parents but still peasants, nothing really in the world, no significance, Uh, and certainly not the kind of wealth that Caesar Augustus has. But when he tells the shepherds, this is why you don't have to fear the holy, he's talking about that baby. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. The angel told Joseph, you will call his name Jesus because he has come to save his people from their sins. When John the Baptist stood in the Jordan River and saw him for the first time, he said, Behold the Lord, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. When Jesus described himself, he said, The Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. God has sent a Savior to earth. Now, brothers and sisters, just please pause here. Don't think that you understand everything that there is to know about a Savior. Why would God do that? Why would God do that? What on earth could be the reason for God to send a Savior to the earth unless you were in need of saving? Unless there is a holy God that you cannot approach who will condemn you. Remember what Jesus said about God? Remember what he said? He says, don't worry, don't fear those who can kill the body but can't kill the soul. Rather, fear him who sends both soul and body to hell. In other words, fear God. Why would God send a savior if you were so good at being righteous you could save yourself? Or if he was such a believing or such a kind and a generous God, kind of like a cosmic grandfather, that he would just wink at your sinfulness as if you hadn't done it. You know, the whole idea of carnal Christianity is a horrible lie. Why would God send a Savior if you didn't need one? 
But brothers and sisters, the only people that God sent his message to are those who know it. Those who understand who God is and those who understand who they are and in the process recognize I need a Savior because that's what He's sent in His Son Jesus Christ to die on a cross, to pay for your sins, to live a perfect life so that you could be given the righteousness that you need to stand in the presence of a holy God. That's God's plan in a nutshell. You need a Savior. Without it, you're lost. For unto you this day is born in the city of David. A Savior who is Christ. That word Christ uh, is a Greek word, Christos. And a lot of people think it's Jesus' last name, but it's not. It's a title. It it means anointed one. The one that God has anointed. It, it, It points to the Hebrew word Messiah. And starting with David, remember I told you there's a line right between here. That's the reason that Luke is saying the city of David. So we will go right back and understand that God promised that there would be a Messiah. And and the prophets from that point on till the end of the prophecy of Malachi, they began to talk about the Messiah, the chosen, the anointed one, the Christ who would come. And he's a king. He's a king of a kingdom. Now, I know. I realize it's hard to see a baby lying in swaddling cloths in a trough made for animals to eat out of to see him as a great king. It's better that we see some of the other visions that God has given us of that king. Like the one he gave Samuel, I'm not Samuel, but Daniel about 550 years earlier. Where Daniel sees in his vision this. He sees the coronation after the ascension of Christ. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. That all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. It was God's ordained plan to send this child here in the greatest humility and humbleness that you can imagine, but that is certainly not the way he's going to come the second time. When he comes the second time, Revelation tells us, then I saw heaven opened, behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on a white horse. He's not going to come as a babe in a manger the second time. The whole eschatology of the Bible is to ask you the question, are you ready when he comes? Because you see, there's something about a king. You know, we're, we're so democratized that we, we, we don't think that, the, that anything but a republic or a democracy is the right form of government. I, I, actually, it's not. I mean, go back to Plato. Plato even realized this, that the best form of government that you could possibly have is that of a kingdom with a benevolent king who loves you, who provides for you, who takes care of you, who is selfless, who cares more about his subjects than he does about himself. Well, that's the kind of king you have. But a king requires obedience. A king requires loyalty. And that leads us to the third thing that the angel says. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Another important word in the New Testament, Lord, kurios in the Greek, Now, if you're talking about a human being, it could easily be a polite address or it can be talking about a master, but not in this context. In this context, it's talking about God. I mean, it might as well have said, and he's Yahweh. He's the God of heaven. He is the one who created heaven and earth. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was was God. He was with God in the beginning and all things that were made were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus Christ is the creator of all the world. He is Lord and master. And so therefore, if he is Lord and master, and here's the point, you accept him as savior, you accept him as king, you accept him as king, you accept him as Lord. 
It's not one or the other. You know, you don't say, okay, thank you for saving me, Jesus. Now I'm going to go ahead and do what I want to do. That's not the way it works. Because when you accept him as a savior, you accept him as king and as Lord, because as Lord, he is God. And he calls you to obedience, to be his subject, to be his followers, to live lives that are sanctified as best as is possible. To be As Thomas said, my Lord and my God, do you understand that you were called into obedience? That's why Paul put it beautifully when he was talking about the humility of Christ to the the Philippians. He said this, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. Now don't miss something. The angel said, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ, God. Now, we're we're real happy when, and I get a lot of amens when I say, okay, I mean, unto you is, is the salvation. Unto you is the atonement. Unto you is the resurrection. Unto you is all the good stuff. But guess what else is unto you? Christ, Lord, Master, King, God, obedience. You see, he is born unto you Because you are now his. Your life is not your own when you follow him. He calls you into obedience. He becomes your Lord and your master. And so therefore, brothers and sisters, that's the way that... That's the solution for the holy fear that turns that holy fear into a loving fear. The fear of God that will take us throughout an eternity. Well, there's one last thing that the angel are going to say to these shepherds. In the 12th verse, he says, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Now, we should resist the temptation to read something special into the word sign. Having just come off of the study of John, we're always looking for some kind of supernatural miracle out of sign. But, But really, the way he's using that word is as a signpost, as a pointer. This is how you will know he's really Jesus. What a significant point, folks. He, he, he doesn't tell him exactly. He says you'll find him wrapped in swaddling cloths. Well, I imagine there's quite a few babies in Bethlehem that night wrapped in swaddling cloths because that's what they used to do. But there's probably only one who's lying in a manger. Which brings everything that we talked about last week right back into it. That whole humility with which Christ was born. In other words, what I think the angel is saying to the shepherds is don't go looking for him in the halls of the palaces of Caesar Augustus because you won't find him. Don't go looking for him among the self-righteous piety of those in Jerusalem, the chief priests and the scribes and Pharisees, because you won't find him there either. Go look for him in the most humble of situations. Look for him in the trough made to feed animals. Because he came to save you. And he's just like you. He has a a, a human body. He understands temptation. He will resist that temptation so that his perfect righteousness can be imputed to you. He is like you. And you will know him when you find him. But what a powerful warning, one that we should take to heart, brothers and sisters. Make sure you find the right Jesus. Make sure you don't go looking in the wrong places. You'll find him wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. Well, the angel has been very straightforward and simple in the way that he has presented this information. So I want to apply it just as simply and as straightforward. If you do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you have every reason in the world to be terrified. Not terrified of your sin, necessarily. Not terrified of hell. Not terrified of the insignificance of your life. But terrified of God. Because God is holy. And He is perfectly wrathful at your sin. The wise person will understand 
who God is and not try to water him down to fit their desires. At the same time, if you are wise, you will recognize who you are. You'll take a good, strong look at yourself. Our culture says, no way, you cannot do this. This is terrible. This runs against everything that the culture teaches. You're okay. You're a good person. Everything is fine. And you're getting better. No, you're not. You're totally depraved. You're absolutely incapable of any holiness or righteousness unless it is given to you. And that's what the angel says is such good news. Recognize that. Recognize who God is and recognize who you are and you'll understand your need for a savior. (laughs) And, And you'll understand your need for a king. And you'll understand your need to be reconciled to your Lord. And so, brothers and sisters, as I bring this to a close, I encourage you to find him. Find the right Jesus. There are a lot of false Jesuses out there. There are a lot of counterfeits. Don't look for him in the halls of power. Don't look for him where the wealthy or where riches are, where a lot of emotionalism is or where a lot of sentimentality is. Look for him in a manger wrapped in swaddling cloths. Look for him in the most humble of places. Look for him as he truly is. Because he is the only Savior, the one who has come to save you. And for this purpose, he entered space and time. Now, if you understand those three aspects, if you understand who God is, and you understand who you are, And you understand who Christ really is. The one who came to form the bridge between you and God. Then and only then. Do the words that the angel said apply to you. Fear not. Let's pray. Lord I know that we have every reason to fear. I fear you even now. I fear the day that I will stand before you. I have such a holy fear. Not as much as I should. I don't live my life in the presence of your holiness like those who are before you do. I'm constantly reminded of it by your word, but Lord, I I would prefer to have a much more normal cognizance or regular cognizance of your holiness and fear you even more than I would run away from sin rather than sometimes falling into it. But Lord, I pray especially for those who don't know you, don't know your son Jesus Christ, and therefore will stand before your wrath for their own sins. Lord, I pray that they will understand the one who came to save them and accept them, accept him as Savior, accept him as King, and accept him as Lord. We'll give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.